Welcome to the Wild West Podcast, where today I'm very excited to welcome my guest, Corey Rich. He's an adventure photographer and filmmaker from South Lake Tahoe. Corey made his reputation shooting the world's elite rock climbers in Yosemite, so people like Tommy Caldwell, Alex Honnold, Beth Rodden, and many more. There's a good chance you've seen one of his images, you know, just in your day-to-day life. For example, a few years ago, during the famous free climb of the Dawn Wall on El Capitan in Yosemite, there was an image of Corey's that basically was broadcast around the world and kind of came to symbolize the climb. It's the one, if you've seen it, it shows Tommy Caldwell ascending on a rope in the morning light. It was really great. It made magazine covers, and it just kind of traveled everywhere on social media. So those are the kinds of images that we're talking about when we talk about Corey Rich. In the adventure sports world, we all share the same playing fields. I mean, and so you bump into these folks. And I, I started bumping into the, the greatest climbers in the world. You know, when I was 18 years old, traveling around the Western United States, sort of sharpening my teeth, photographing rock climbing. Corey has a new book out. It's called Stories Behind the Images. It's a kind of memoir that's told through some of his favorite photographs. It includes these great up-close, intimate images of climbers and surfers and alpinists and adventurers who are totally in the zone doing their thing. But then it includes commentary, lessons, stories, and just these memories from Corey that really help bring the photos to life. So Corey runs his production company out of South Lake Tahoe. And so in our conversation, we talk about the community and the changes that South Lake is going through, which is really interesting to get Corey's perspective on. We also talk about his relationship to social media. And then Corey just tells some fun stories about hanging out with climbers and adventurers and, you know, what he looks for in an adventure photography assignment. So it's cool to hear. Here's my conversation with photographer and filmmaker Corey Rich. Welcome to the podcast, Corey. How's it going? Good. It's, it's, I'm doing great. I just drove down from Lake Tahoe this morning. Oh, you did? And, uh, and I was blown away. I'm always reminded driving into San Francisco that it might be one of the most beautiful cities on the planet. That's a high compliment coming from somebody who lives, you know, in arguably one of the most beautiful places in the state, in the country, maybe a world-class destination. I think having San Francisco so close to Tahoe is what it kind of, it's the icing on the cake in Lake Tahoe. Incredible scenic beauty in Lake Tahoe, amazing recreation. But then to be three hours away from San Francisco where, you know, frankly, where it's all happening, um, that, I mean, it makes it even a better mountain town. Plus, it's kind of close to Reno, too. That's right. You know, <laughs> that, that, it is true. I, look, I, I'm a guy. I fly, I fly out of the Reno airport weekly, if not twice a week. And um, I'll tell you, the ease of Reno getting in and out is pretty amazing. But uh, the, 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 the culture of San Francisco complements uh, South Lake. Yeah. It's a nice addition because if we relied exclusively on Reno, it would be a little tougher. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about South Lake. It's a place that is of interest to me for a number of reasons, but one of them where I wanted to start with it is uh, you have this idea to turn South Lake Tahoe or to have South Lake Tahoe recognized uh, as the adventure capital of the world. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think I've lived in South Lake for close to 15 years now. And, and I, I've had this realization that I can live in this mountain town that, as, as I stated, it's close to Reno, close to Sacramento, close to San Francisco, and do the greatest work of my life. And we live in, an, a, in a culture where today it's not critical that you're sitting in the same building as your colleagues. 
And so we just have this incredible amount of flexibility to work in an amazing, live and work in an amazing place, do the best work of your life, but then actually have a high quality of life where you don't sit in traffic, you spend more time with your friends, with your families, on your bike, skiing, climbing. And, um, and, I, and I'm not the only guy that's thinking that way. It turns <laughs> out a lot of people are figuring this out that, boy, I can kind of have the best of both worlds, live in a mountain town with world-class recreation and do the best work of my life. And, you know, I think South Lake Tahoe, we, I think for years, we've been, we've been viewed as the sort of the Vegas of the mountains. You know, we have right. these couple of casinos in South Lake Tahoe. And, but the, the casinos are sort of dying. I mean, it's not, people don't just come to South Lake Tahoe for a bachelorette and bachelor, bachelor parties and to go gambling. I think we're finally, folks are realizing like, oh my gosh, this is some of the best, most diverse recreation in the United States, if not the world, with some of the best weather on the planet, close to some of the greatest cities, you know, in the West. And so that combo, that magic combo, it kind of does make it a bit of an adventure capital of the world, meaning, you know, you can sort of get there quickly. It's easy to access. We have incredible recreation. And, and I think the layer that is important to me, turns out it doesn't just have to be a place you visit. It turns out it can be a place that you actually live and have a family and, you know, run a thriving business or at least excel in your career. So this is what interests me about South Lake right now is while these other mountain towns around the West are kind of booming in their own way, it doesn't feel like South Lake is booming. What's going on? I think we're a diamond in the rough. Huh. Like, look, I'm not an investor or not, <laughs> not at a high level. I'm, you know, I'm, but, I, but what it feels like right now is the person that today invests in South Lake Tahoe 10 years from now, 20 years from now, is gonna, will have scored. You know, we're seeing some big change. We're seeing some of you know, the nicest Whole property. Fruits. Yeah, the nicest <laughs> resort property in the entire Tahoe Basin just landed in South Lake, the Edgewood Resort. We have a Whole Food opening, Whole Foods and Chipotle and a, you know, a Five Guys Burgers and, and the works. Like they're opening two blocks from our office on Ski Run Boulevard. We're seeing hotels, the, you know, the old dumps get purchased by Bay Area investors and folks around the country. And they're putting real money into it and they're bringing cool restaurants and they're bringing and and all of that it feels like it's it's all happening right now the fire the fire is getting stoked right now yeah um and you know I, i'm waiting for the day that the one of the casinos finally throws up their hands and we have a we work space hmm. in south lake <laughs> i mean the casino gets turned into a we work space and maybe another gets torn down and by the way i have nothing against casinos it's just Similar to what we saw in Vegas, it went from exclusively gaming to how do we create an experience? Sure. Uh, more concerts and other experiences, dining. And so I think South Lake has just been a diamond in the rough. We're, we're, we're a small mountain city, not just a mountain town. Uh-huh. You know, we have 25 or 30,000 full-time residents. And a lot of bad decisions were made in planning 20 and 40 and 50 and 60 years ago. And that's a longer tale. It's harder to correct that. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at a Tahoe city where it's a strip of land. Yeah. And, you know, it only goes a few blocks on each side. That's a little easier to course correct. Hmm. I mean, the poor planning, you can adjust in a couple of years, a couple of decades. Correcting the mistakes made in South Lake, it's a big infrastructure. I feel like I fell into an amazing moment in South Lake, and I, and I feel fortunate to watch it evolve. Yeah. You know, we're oftentimes referred to as the dirty South amongst the uh, <laughs> amongst amongst the folks at the lake, and I've kind of learned to accept that. It's like, yep, th- I love it. We're we're a little grittier. It's a little raw. 
Um, we're rough around the edges. But with that comes an incredible community of people that really are there for a reason. They're, you know, we're raising families there. We're building businesses there. And, and we have this vision and hope that our little city is going to look pretty different in 10 and 20 years. Yeah, one of the stories that I've been kind of tracking uh, that's unfolding in South Lake is this debate or this fight against short-term rentals, vacation mm-hmm. rentals there. And it seems to me the the way that I understand it is that that has been kind of one of these barriers to establishing like a core community of South Lake, you know, of year-round residents who feel invested in the community. But I wanted to ask if you, you know, if you see that as somebody who lives there and if that's maybe if that is some kind of barrier, because obviously that's not just in South Lake. It's happening around the lake, all of these properties that are left uh, vacant for most of the year because they're second homes or they're vacation rentals or whatever. Right. And it's not hard to imagine how that can kind of uh, undermine like the needs and the development and the growth of a community if it's all just there for tourists. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a couple of things happening simultaneously in South Lake. I, I think one is where tourism will always be part of our community and Mm -hmm. we want tourism to be part of our community. Frankly, I think what we want to see is the tourist change slightly. You know, I described that the bachelor, bachelorette party. We we want to see like a village full of mountain bikes. We want to see the, you know, the gondola hauling mountain bikes out of the South Lake, you know, the heavenly village. And we want to see healthy, active people that are that are out actually enjoying nature. They're getting dirt under their fingernails and they're getting wet and they're swimming and they're and it's not just a – it's an active tourist is what mm-hmm. we want. I mean, that's that's the dream, right? Our, the entire landscape of our town changes as we get more active, healthy families up there to have real wilderness or outdoor experiences. Um, th- that's one variable. We want to see our tourists change. The other piece is we want to have more jobs in South Lake Tahoe, more businesses where they can afford to pay people real wages, where they can buy a house. Right, it's house buying jobs. We're so dependent on tourism right now that mm-hmm. the majority of the jobs are, you know, serving, you know, it's waiters and waitresses and 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 cleaning services. It's re- very geared for a tourist economy. Yeah. And and when we see that scale shift, when it turns out there's jobs that pay north of fifty thousand or seventy thousand dollars a year, and a lot of them. I think this idea of people not being, they just need wages that allow them to buy homes. We're still like cents on the dollar. You know, when you compare a, the average price for a home in South Lake Tahoe to San Francisco, I mean, it's laughable. <laughs> right. And then you compare the average price for a home in, in South Lake Tahoe to Telluride or Aspen, you know, other great mountain towns. And again, those are towns, not cities. So there is some kind of a delineation between the two. It's still a heck of a deal. Yeah. So it's, I, I think it's, to me, it's less about the vacation rental issue. It's more about, you know, when does our, when does our tourist base change? Because hmm. that tourist actually turns out they spend real money and they and they make conscious decisions about where they put their money, and and how do we and when do we have more jobs, real house buying jobs that pay house buying wages, and as we have more of those jobs, small companies moving to town, that changes kind of the landscape of of what Tahoe looks like and this debate over. Um, you know, is there, are, there are plenty of homes that are available. We just need people that can afford to actually buy them, hmm. that, that decide to move their life to the mountains, yet still do the, the great work. Well, to shift gears a little bit there, how did you become this established, like, adventure photographer and filmmaker? What is the path? What, is, what was your path there? I realize that's a long story. Yeah, yeah. But well, I, you know, I joke now, now I'm 43 years old, and I sort of you know, I had to do a lot of looking in the rearview mirror 
to put this book together, stories behind the images. And, you know, now I kind of like to joke that it turns out I'm glad I ended up on this path because I think I'm totally unemployable except for <laughs> what I do. <laughs> um, no, I, you know, it's, it all starts with passion. I fell in love with the outdoors. I fell in love with rock climbing. And I had a school teacher that took me rock climbing when I was 13. And the next weekend, I borrowed my dad's SLR camera to kind of document the weekend climbing adventure. And within, and I fell in love with photography. And I realized it was really hard. Telling stories, making compelling photographs wasn't easy. And so two parallel passions were born in the span of seven days. My love for the outdoors and climbing, my love for trying to document my weekend adventures using a camera to tell stories. And, and I've literally spent the 30 years following that, pursuing those two passions, spending as much time outside as I possibly can. And, you know, the camera has become, it's sort of my backstage pass to life, or it's that golden ticket. It's opened so many doors. You know, it's, I've, I've boarded more flights and gone on more crazy journeys because of that camera. Um, and so I'm just thankful that really the path was both the, a love for adventure and a love for telling stories. More with Corey in just a second, but first this brief message. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One of the things that interests me about the kind of the life and the job, the career, occupation, I guess, of adventure filmmaker um, or adventure photographer is as much as it is about your skill and experience, your knowledge base, and your kind of, you know, your abilities as an athlete it also comes down a lot to relationships with people. A lot of the time, um, I'm sure you you know are this way too. Like you end up filming or shooting uh, somebody who's a friend of yours or who's like a friend of a friend. How are you able to kind of figure out what gig, what assignment you might want to do next, based on the fact that you're going to have to be in really close quarters potentially with these people? You know, if you're if you're sort of following them on an adventure. Right. I think it's one of the the best parts of my job. I mean, it's, I, I always say, you know, that there's just, there's like no line between my life and my work, you know, they, they just blend seamlessly together. I mean, okay. they really do. It's, you know, the people that I work with are my best friends. My clients become my great friends. Um, and I, you know, and I feel really blessed that that's how this, this works, but it means I'm like wholly committed right. all the time. And I have been from that very first day, I really, you know, clipped into the first carabiner and picked up my first camera it just it, it was all one thing it's just this pursuit you know first of all those two passions overlapped perfectly you know this pursuit of adventure and the love for storytelling through imagery um but you know the relationships i that that is that's kind of the greatest part of this job i'm not you know i certainly i've shot nfl football games and you know in, in my early days of honing the craft of photography i worked in the newspaper world and and I, and I sat on many sidelines of games, but that felt very different. I was pointing a lens at a guy with a number on his back that I was never going to talk to, hmm. I was never going to travel with. I, you know, he, 
he was like the player and I was the journalist. And in the adventure sports world, it's very different. You know, as a climber, and I figured this out early, you could go to Yosemite and I might be climbing on a cliff and 100 feet to my right, the best climbers in the world were climbing on a cliff, admittedly with fewer holds and it was steeper. And, and, that, and that's the catch. In the adventure sports world, we share the same playing fields as the greatest athletes on the planet. Hmm. That doesn't happen in football, baseball, basketball, tennis. You don't go down to the local tennis court in San Francisco and Andre Agassi's at the court next to you. It just doesn't happen that way. There's yeah. sort of different playing fields for the elite. And in the adventure sports world, we all share the same playing fields. I mean, and so you bump into these folks. And I, I started bumping into the, the greatest climbers in the world, you know, when I was 18 years old, traveling around the Western United States, sort of sharpening my teeth, photographing rock climbing. My job is to, I'm the observer, right? You know, I, I show up, I've been on a lot of the adventures. I'm still a participant in the adventure, but I'm not the guy actually climbing the wall or doing the hardest thing. I'm there to make pictures. I'm there to be the, the historian, the storyteller. And those long-term relationships are really what made this book possible. You know, I've sort of, we've, I've just spent a lot of time with some of these incredible athletes, incredible people. I, you know, I have to tell the story that last night, um, Tommy Caldwell, who's on the cover of the book, I think appropriately, it's Tommy on the on the cover of the book. Um, he and his two kids stayed at our house last night in South Lake Tahoe. And there was this, we had this, it was really fun. I have a six-year-old girl and Tommy has a six-year-old boy. And I think his girl might be four years old. And, and moms were out. They were all hanging. The girls had a girls' night out. And it was Tommy and I and the kids. And, and we ended up in the hot tub. We're sitting on the deck and the stars are out. And, and Tommy and I defaulted to doing what we love to do, which is telling stories. We started reminiscing and telling stories of past adventures from you know, Alaska to China to Yosemite. And then we turned it into this game where the kids wanted to tell stories too. So we started rotating around and I would tell a story. Then my daughter would tell a story and then Tommy's son would tell a story and then his daughter would try to tell a story. And, then hmm. Tom, and it went on for an hour of just telling these incredible stories of last night really encapsulated what my entire career has been about. It's about friendship it's about adventure and it's about storytelling. And both Tommy and I woke up to have coffee this morning and we, you know, out of, out of our mouths, the first thing I said and the first thing Tommy said was, man, last night was incredible. To see our kids telling stories mostly around adventure, you know, we're doing something right. Hmm. We got so much out of, you know, that, that is, that's what my career is about. It's about being on adventures with people that I love and care for and then telling the stories in the aftermath. Have you ever been on an assignment where you're with friends, people you're close with, and taken a photo or maybe after the fact sort of submitted a photo to them that, you know, you both knew you wanted to run in a publication or be seen publicly and had to have like a difficult conversation with them about why that photo or that moment is important? Like, have you ever had sort of a debate with people that mm. you're with about the work that you produce, yeah. or, you know, after the fact? No, you know, not that I can think of, uh, you know, but, but that question, I really can't think of a situation where I shot a picture or a situation, uh, you know, or a scenario that then folks were uncomfortable with in the aftermath. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I like to say that I'm a pretty 
solid photographer, filmmaker. I can tell stories. But I think what really, you know, maybe one of my, my real gifts is that I think I'm just an easy guy to hang out with. <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of, I, my ego, I just don't think I have a lot of ego. And I, and I definitely, when we're on an adventure or on a trip, you know, I, I try to really be that. And I know this is cliche in the journalism world to say, but to be that fly on the wall where it's, and I'm going to use Tommy as an example. If I'm up photographing Tommy on like the hardest, longest route in the world, which is, you know, this cover of this book, The Dawn Wall, my job is to, I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't be influencing anything. That's mm -hmm. my goal. My goal is I'm there, I'm quiet, I'm sort of letting him be in his headspace. And frankly, I need to be in my own headspace. I'm supposed to be performing at an elite level as a storyteller, as a visual storyteller, and, and he needs to be performing at an elite level as an athlete. And so I, that's one of the things that I've really learned over time is, you know, my job actually in the moment is to sort of not get in anyone's way, not kill myself or threaten anybody else with like, you know, the, because we're in risky environments frequently and constantly shift from being, am I in the right spot? Am I safe? Am I putting anyone at risk? Is, you know, is everything attached to me? Is there any like rock that's going to fall on my head or eyes? And then I switch gears and it's, okay, now I need to be creative. And I'm, but I'm not influencing the situation. I'm, I'm trying to like really create just this piece mm -hmm. so that the athlete, and I'm using the example of Tommy, that they can perform at a high level. Yeah. You know, there have been situations over the years where content has been used that later came back to bite us. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, there's a story in the book about a trip that we did down the Grand Canyon. We, we did a 20-day raft trip down the Grand Canyon, and it was to we were going to explore climbing areas on the, on the Colorado River. And so we assembled an incredible team. It was Beth Rodden, Tommy Caldwell, Chris McNamara, um, Dan Duane, myself, uh, Peter Mortimer, and Josh Lowell, two okay. filmmakers. Yeah. So, you know, again, checks the box. Awesome adventure check. Great people check. You know, compelling storytelling possibilities check. And, um, and Chris... Partway down the river, uh, Chris McNamara was kind of right in the beginning stages of, he was just base jumping all the time. And we thought we were on Indian reservation land and Chris saw this great exit point. And so we, you know, we all climbed up the back of this cliff and Chris base jumped down to the river. And uh, Pete and Josh were shooting a television show for NBC. So, you know, we had lots of deliverables, print publications, television. And uh, it ended up in the TV show, Chris base jumping base jumping down to the Grand Canyon, down to the Colorado River. And almost two years on the dot after the trip, the phone rang and it was a district attorney, a DA, or a federal prosecutor, sorry, federal prosecutor from Flagstaff, Arizona, quizzing me about our trip down the Grand Canyon. Huh. Asking, he said, oh, I just saw, you know, I just saw the NBC show and looked like a heck of a lot of fun. Can, can I ask you some questions? Hmm. And I never thought I would have the opportunity to say this in my life, but I actually had the chance to say, I think you're going to have to talk to my attorney. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it turned out, you know, that it's, there's a charge for you're not allowed to base jump in a uh, national park. And we were, in fact, in a national oh, park. Oh, you were, yeah. And so it turned out uh, it's called illegal air delivery. Uh-huh. And um, <laughs> so Chris and I, I was... I violated a federal filming permit in a national park. The filming permit was under my name. And, you know, of course, you have to do everything above water and by the law, by the word of the law. And Chris uh, violated the no illegal air delivery 
law. And so we both ended up in federal court in Flagstaff, Arizona, um, in in front of a federal magistrate. And so, you know, that's that's a sort of a tangent, but it's when you ask that question, is there ever a debate about what gets published? You know, the answer is, in, re- in, the re- in retrospect, maybe that shouldn't have made it into the TV show. Though yeah. I will say that experience of going to court was pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, because you, you mentioned it, because you mentioned um, being up on the wall and sort of getting your logistics straight before you get into photography, there was one, I think it was on your, it was like a social media post from earlier this year of yours that I read, where you m- mentioned a time when you were photographing uh, Beth Rodden and Tommy on the wall. And it sounded like you had sort of a close call or like a near-death experience maybe in retrospect. I was wondering if you could tell that story. Sure, sure. I was up on the nose with Tommy and Beth uh, while Tommy was trying to free climb the nose. And we're on the crux pitch, which means the hardest 150-foot section Mm -hmm. on the nose. And it's called the changing corners pitch. It's really challenging. It's and in the book, you can see Tommy's wedged into this corner. It's yeah. this crazy friction to stay into the in the wall. And we were out there really early in the morning because you wanted cold temperatures. And I was hanging in space on a rope so that I, you know, I could have this cool perspective where you really saw the depth of the image and the kind of that how high we were off the ground. And I realized all of a sudden that my white static rope was was going into the frame and it was tied to the anchor where Beth was belaying. And so that's just kind of a to no-no and climbing, you know, you don't want to reveal how you're doing it. It's just sloppy. And so I yelled yeah. down to Beth. I said, Beth, can you unclip my rope? And Beth, you know, of course, she's belaying her husband on the hardest pitch in the world. <laughs> so that's not her main focus. She reaches in, unclips the rope, it swings into space. And I shoot for a few more minutes, and then Tommy blows out of the corner. He just can't hang on. And I can tell Tommy's super frustrated, and Beth starts lowering Tommy and I switch from my ascenders to my blade rappel device, and I start rappelling down the rope. And Tommy and I are sort of, we're, we're about 10 feet apart, you know, not much farther than you and I are sitting right now in this, in this studio. And Tommy, out of nowhere, says, stop, what are you doing? And it, and it catches me off guard, and so I kind of, you know, let go of my blade rappel device, so it auto stops, and, and he's staring at my hands, and I look down, and I realize a foot and a half below my rappel device is the end of the rope with no knot in it <laughs> and, you know, 1,500 feet of air <sighs> down to the valley floor. And it's just a reminder that, you know, at that moment in my life, I bet I was spending 250-plus days a year in those environments, in mountains, hanging on ropes, you know, gosh, probably 50 days a year in Yosemite hanging on ropes. And it's not for lack of skill or experience. It was complacency. You yeah. Know, somehow I just, I was too comfortable. It was my office. I was just too comfortable. And, um, you know, my heart came out of my chest and I double and triple checked everything. You know, I started triple checking everything and I was nervous for the next week or two. And But it's a reminder. It's that reminder that, you know, you can be in very dangerous environments where the snow or the ice or the rock, you know, the, it, it's changing and the mountains are alive. But Turns out human error is probably the biggest danger that we face in hmm. the mountains. That's interesting. Yeah. I hear that – well, have you been back to shoot on El Capitan since the Don Wall film, since Free Solo came out? I have. You know, I've, I've, I've probably – you know, certainly my life has evolved, changed. I mean, there was no longer my hanging on ropes 250 days a year these days. <laughs> 
But yeah, once a year, I'm probably in Yosemite shooting on El Cap or some other cliff. Um, but it's, you know, it has been pretty amazing to see just sort of the energy for climbing evolve. This is the pinnacle of popularity for rock climbing. No right. question about it. I mean, between the Don Wall and Free Solo and, and you know, in Tokyo in the Olympics, we're going to have rock climbing as a as an event this year. It's a competition. Yeah. You know, gosh, there are more rock climbing gyms than ever before. Yeah. You know, it's, it feels like it's becoming AYSO soccer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hear that not only are there a ton of climbers who are all trying to free climb El Capitan now, but uh, it sounds like there are photographers and filmmakers like all over the wall all the time now, yeah. which is interesting. It's you know I, th- I think we're as a as a culture and as a sport we're 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 going to have to deal with and we're starting to deal with there's just more climbers I mean that's it there's more first of all there's more people on planet Earth and there are far more climbers today than there have ever been and so there are definitely we're we as a climbing community we're trying to figure out how do we self manage ourselves yeah can we um, and and what does that look like you know are the cliffs are getting more crowded. Uh, there's there's impact. Uh, there's use trails. I, I will say this: as a as a community, the climbing culture is really impressive at regulating itself. Even as we watch the sports popularity grow, and we're seeing more climbers in Yosemite and Joshua Tree. You know, when there was a national park shutdown because of the government, you know, f- spending freeze, it was climbers that went into Yosemite and emper- emptied the trash cans and and Joshua Tree National Park. But it's today more so than ever, nonprofits like the Access Fund are really critical because they're the organizations that are helping to create policy in D.C. and really kind of building local community groups to help deal with this just increase in in users. Um, You know, to your question around are there more folks on El Cap, absolutely. And and there are more photographers. It's, you know, the the sport that I started photographing 20 – some odd years ago. It's a different sport. You know, it's definitely a different sport. I, you know, I felt like a lone soldier 20 some odd years ago. You know, it was me and you could count the other photographer storytellers on two hands. Mm-hmm. You know, now I'm daily, I get an email or I meet someone that, you know, I, I don't know their name. I don't know their pictures, but they're making a living at this. And that speaks to just sort of the demand. Our industry's bigger. You know, the net worth of the North Face or Patagonia or any of these outdoor brands, REI, it's, you know, they're booming right now. Mm-hmm. And that's because there's a lot of users that are excited. And, and that's the part that, I, that, I, that does excite me. I know what climbing has done for me. I know what this passion for being outside has done. It's, it's led to a very fulfilling and, and rich life. And, you know, that part excites me when I see people lined up to go climbing and, and cars in the parking lot and, you know, more headlamps on El Capitan. It might be a different experience than I had 10 or 20 years ago, but it's the same experience. They're having an adventure, and they're creating their own stories. You kind of answered my question, but what I was going to ask you is not to be like two old men on the couch here, but do you does it bother you, or do you feel like there has been a loss because of how uh, crowded is maybe not the best word, but how crowded, how popular a place like Yosemite Valley, you know, or El Capitan has become with climbers? I, you know, personally, I don't find the experience that much different. It's, you know, it, it's specifically El Capitan and Yosemite. Look, Yosemite's been crowded for the last 
hundred years. I mean, it's it's crowded. It's the most spectacular national park in California. I mean, maybe maybe in the United States, there are a lot of people there. I think there's been an uptick in climbing for sure. Mm-hmm. There's an uptick of climbers on El Capitan. Does it is is the experience ruined? Absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely not. I, I, the price of entry to climb on El Capitan, it's still pretty hard. Yeah. It's still pretty hard. It's yeah. like, you know, having a, a membership to Ironworks or Pipeworks or the Berkeley Gym or uh-huh. Mission Cliffs, or that doesn't mean you can climb El Cap. And, and you figure that out in about the first 15 feet right. you know, off the ground that, oh, this is like a totally different world. So it's still a pretty unique group of folks that are up on El Cap. Um, you know, I... 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you know, is, could there be a larger impact? Sure, of course, yeah. I, but, I, but I, I, you know, folks have said this about wilderness for a long time. As soon as you have to put a lot of effort into it, it never gets crowded. You can still have really incredible, genuine experiences yeah. despite the popularity of climbing. You know, you said that you don't spend all of your days dangling from ropes anymore. Obviously, you've grown and expanded since those earlier days, but does all of the attention and all of the imagery that comes out of climbing nowadays or adventure sports in general nowadays make your job harder, you think? Like, is it tougher for you now than it was 15 years ago or 20 years ago when there was a little bit, you know, the the technology and the interest and everything hadn't made it as as popular as it is today? No, I mean, I think full disclosure for me, you know, I, I think I leveraged my experience in the outdoor adventure world. I spent so much time outside photographing rock climbing and kayaking and skiing and mountain biking and going on expeditions around the world. And becoming an expert in that world opened the door to doing work that was totally unrelated to the adventure sports world, but where the stakes were high financially. Hmm. You know, working for Fortune 100 companies where they need high-end storytelling. And so I've gone through this shift where today most of my work, 80% of it, is for big companies telling stories, both in video and still photography, usually with a team of people where I'm directing the project. Most of it we can't talk about. Like, you know, my ego gets checked at the door and uh and i'm okay with that i, I mean i there, i'm not trying to prove something with everything that i do and then the other 20 percent of my world is i still get to go out and sort of pick and choose the best adventure projects and and i think that's part of the graduating in this world um you know to this day it's still it would be it's pretty hard to make a living and raise a family um, and and have a healthy lifestyle exclusively in the outdoor adventure space as a photographer or storyteller. It would be pretty hard. Life evolves, and I think I've become a better – I'm a better photographer or filmmaker when I'm shooting adventure because of the time that I spend in the more advertising commercial world and vice versa. When I'm shooting the advertising commercial stuff, I'm better at it because I have 20 years of hanging on ropes and being in the mountains. You know, it's sort of – the hardest day in the commercial advertising world is the easiest day, hmm. you know, outdoors. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning there's never spin drift blowing in my face when we're, you know, shooting an ad in a studio. Yeah. Uh, I think I got the idea for this next question from either from your book or from uh, one of your social media accounts. But you go to these incredible remote places and it's your job on 
some very basic level as a photographer to expose them, to show them to the world. And I wonder if you ever have any qualms about that, like in terms of putting a secret spot on the map or, yeah, kind of blow, you know, yeah, blowing a place yeah. out like that. I'm more sensitive to it today than ever before. Why, why is that? Because the technology has changed so much, mm -hmm. right? The tech, it's just information is so easy to acquire. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, doing a feature story on a remote destination in a magazine, it still required a ton of energy, ton of effort from the reader to really figure out how to get there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's today, a few keystrokes in Google, you know, you, you can look at an Instagram post with literally with GPS coordinates, find it in, you know, on a Google map, then Google the destination, and, and within 10 minutes, you can figure out how to get virtually anywhere on the planet. So, so that's one piece of it, just the tech, the information, the accessibility of information. It's, it's much easier for folks to sort of get to that wild place. I used to always say, no, it's too hard to get there. Mm -hmm. you know, LCAP, it's too hard to get there. It's sort of, you can find it on a map, but it's still really hard to get yourself halfway up the wall. You know, a beautiful beach, probably not that hard to get yourself there if you have the pocketbook, you know, to get, to get there. I think the other thing is this culture, which is, you know, Instagram is social media yeah. has become so popular and it's, I'm not sure everybody is actually about the journey. You know, I say, like, I, I love the journey. I think other folks would say, no, I'm actually about the, like, getting there. And getting there in social media means you stand there in that spot and you hold your phone out and you do yeah. a selfie and you spin around and shoot a video and you say something to the camera like, here I am, I'm on top of X, Y, or Z, or I'm <laughs> at this one spot. And, and that's scary because that person has a totally different respect for that place. And their consciousness of the, the ramifications of their impact on that environment or that location. Um, when you lose touch with kind of the, the impact that you're having on a wild place, it's really scary. And so that, those two components have, have really changed my willingness to be totally forthright with, with where I am. Um, you know, I'm, I'm willing to be a lot more vague because I, I want to make sure those places are protected I don't want it to be a secret spot. It's not just for me. I want it to be for the folks that are into the journey. Mm -hmm. I think that's the key. Those that are like really respect the journey. I'll, I'll share information all day long. It's, um, it's just that scary thing when, you know, you, I, I've had that happen in Lake Tahoe. I have a favorite mm. mountain biking trail Okay, where somehow it ended up on, you know, I share it with everyone that comes to town. I ask them to ride it. I say it's incredible. And then it got posted on, you know, one of these trail sites or message boards and literally overnight it went from my you know for 10 years i've seen one other person maybe three at most on a saturday on the trail to on a tuesday afternoon i saw 35 people mm. and and it's I, it's not a terrible thing i mean that's not a terrible like people are outside enjoying nature that's like that is paramount that's the most important it slightly changed my experience. I'm sure. Yeah. You yeah. can't keep that perspective yeah. when you're in the moment, you know, yeah. trying to enjoy yourself. like that's Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was still really positive, and I said, you know, the flip side is I rode the same trail yesterday, and there was no one there. Mm. And so, you know, under perfect conditions, more people are there today. When it's cold and wet, and you know, no one's there. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, I, I like being cold and wet just as much as I like being in the sun. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, a few more quick questions sure. and then we can get you out of here because I know you got other stuff going on. What are some photography or video or editing 
cliches that you hate? <laughs> hmm. oh, boy, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough one. Um, I'll give you one of mine. Yeah, quick. yeah, yeah. Drones have like opened up this whole new world of video, especially well, photography, video sure. and photography. They're awesome. It's incredible. Can't get enough drone footage. But there's this kind of like slow mo 360 drone shot that people are into these days, and uh, it sort of fully takes me out of the experience of watching whatever I'm right. watching because it's just such a stylized like maneuver, and I just feel like I see it everywhere, especially in um, you know in outdoorsy right. videos and photography. You're trying to show this incredible panoramic you know, landscape. And for me, I don't know if there's anything. It's, it's funny. I don't really dwell on the stuff that's like repetitive or cliche. I guess I'm always the guy that's like looking for the, I just want to be surprised. That's hmm. I'm always like the guy looking for, I want to see that shot or that approach or that clip that just blows me away because I've never seen it before. And that could be the place or it could be the way the filmmaker, or the storyteller is doing it. There's nothing that just like, you know, kind of rubs me the wrong way. It's just <laughs> I think I'm I'm just always craving being wowed and it's pretty rare that I'm wowed. Hmm. Is there a way that you use social media to test ideas? Like I get that it's a good way to build audience and stay in touch with people, communicate. But do you find like visually you can kind of test things on, you know, in the format of Instagram for hmm. example? They give you ideas about, I don't know, how to incorporate that into your, you know, your right. uh, commercial and professional work. I wish I was that sophisticated. I <laughs> wish I could tell you, oh, yeah, look, I have this system. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, you know, I think like most of us, I'm trying to figure out what does all this mean? You know, where does social media fit into my life? Uh, you know, I, I find myself on a daily basis. I find I get great joy out of social media. I love seeing what my friends are up to. I love finding great work that inspires me. And then I get irritated that I'm having to sit here and like post what's happening in my life and I'd rather be living my life and I'm writing all of these extended captions and sure. thinking about a schedule to put stuff up. This feels like work all of a sudden. Yeah. And I like the extended captions for the record. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, it, I mean, that's probably a test. It turns out that's been an ex – I mean, we didn't – I didn't set out to make it an experiment, but it turns out it kind of was – and it turns out you're not the only person that likes extended captions. Like people, I think, are tired of, you know, two-word two, two captions that say nothing, mean nothing, you know, that are just clever. It's extended, meaningful, thoughtful captions people respond to. Mm -hmm. But no, I'm, I, I wish I did have a better answer that, you know, it's sort of, it's my laboratory is, you know, I test what works and what doesn't work. <laughs> but it's, it's really hard to make it a laboratory because we don't understand the algorithms, right? Hmm. Like kind of... Yeah what worked one day doesn't work the next day. And you don't know if it's because of the imagery or the story or the caption or, or if something just changed on the back end. Last question, and then we'll let you get out of here. Is there a subject, person, place that you haven't shot that you want to shoot? You know, I, I've, I've been guilty of this my whole life. You know, you, oftentimes I get the question, what's, what's the greatest trip you've ever been on? And and it's always whatever I was just on. You know, I, sure. I just had so much fun on the last trip, and I talk about that trip. And kind of that same thing happens with, you know, is there any dream place that I want to go? There's – the more I travel, it truly – I realize, oh, I haven't seen anything yet. Yeah. I mean, I, I just I, – I've barely scratched the surface. Um, so certainly as I get older, I want to spend more time 
in the high mountains. I've kind of, I made a conscious effort as, you know, in my 20s and 30s and even early 40s. Like, I, I just don't want to be at high altitude a lot. You know, it's just the, the odds of getting hurt or dying increase. Yet I want to taste it a bit. Like, I actually do want to, I want to spend a little more time in that environment. I'll probably wait until my daughter's a little bit older. But I don't know. I, I just love fresh new experiences. That's for me. It's I'm I'm the most excited when it doesn't feel like Groundhog Day. Yeah. When I feel like I'm doing something that totally challenge. You know, I don't know. I like to say that there's like these boxes that I want to check. Am I with great people? Check. You know, that's like ideal. Am I in a wild outdoor adventure environment, like one of the most beautiful places on earth, or rugged? Check. You know, that's great. Am I challenged? Am I in like an environment that is totally new to me or like has me pinned to the limit of my, you know, ability and I'm having to dig deep? Check. Like those three things, that's what I want to do more of. You know, is that a specific place? I almost don't care where that happens. I just want those three things to happen. Mm -hmm. And ideally there's a fourth box is I get paid to do it and and the folks I'm with get paid to do it so that we can do more of it. Yeah, that's pretty good. All right, cool. Well, I want to let you get on with your day, but thanks very much, Corey Ridge, for coming through. This was great. Hey, my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks very much again, Corey, for coming on the show. Follow his work on Instagram. His handle is Corey Rich Productions. That's Corey with an E-Y. His new book is out this fall. It's called Stories Behind the Images. Check it out. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Outdoors coverage, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me, suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me, gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, please throw us a rating and review. See you next time.